the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Hey, looking forward to uh, sharing a conversation with Tony Reinke. He's the author of God, Technology, and the Christian Life. That's coming up in the second hour. We're also going to talk about France's pension protest and what that might mean here in America. So stick around for that. If you can. Well, as expected, President Biden announced that he and Vice President Harris will seek reelection in a video released earlier Tuesday morning. In fact, Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Not sure who saw it initially, but in the video titled Freedom, President Biden echoed his 2020 campaign message of battling for the soul of our nation, uniting the, uh, the country and supporting the middle class. His campaign said the video, not live, but video opens with footage of the January 6th U.S. Capitol protest. I'm not sure how that lends itself to uniting the nation, but freedom, personal freedom is fundamental to who we are as Americans, he says. There's nothing more important, nothing more sacred. Biden, who is 80, said in the video, that's been the work of my first term, to fight for our democracy. This shouldn't be a red or blue issue, he added. Well, this is not a time to be complacent. That's why I'm running for re-election, because I know America. I know we are good and decent people. And I know we are still a country that believes in honesty and respect and treating each other with dignity. That we're a nation where we give the hate no safe harbor. And we believe that everyone is equal and that everyone should be given a fair shot to succeed in this country. I think we would all agree to every one of those tenets. However, I'm not sure they're represented as stated. Well, he went on to announce um, on the same day that the uh, that Biden announced his candidacy for the 2020 presidential election, which he eventually won over President Donald Trump. Vice President Harris also released a statement calling the 2024 presidential election a pivotal moment in our history. And despite the president's calling for unity and respect in the upcoming election, the vice president then attacked Republicans as extremists and accused GOP candidates of wanting to take the country backward. Well, Biden's entry into the 2024 contest comes as several Republicans have already joined the running. That includes Biden's uh, 2020 opponent, Donald Trump, Governor Nikki Haley, Senator Tim Scott, Vivek Ramosway and others. And on the Democratic side, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. has announced his intention to seek his party's nomination. Biden and Harris remain immensely popular, rather unpopular, with Biden's approval rating in the low 40s in most polls. So the announcement has been made, although it was a recorded uh, announcement. An AI-generated song that cloned Drake and The Weeknd's voices and mimicked their styles highlights new copyright issues born from artificial intelligence's rapid development, a university lecturer says. And whether artists can protect the style of uh, something via copyright is an issue that's going to start happening as it relates to artificial intelligence. Tyler Coleman, a University of Texas at Austin adjunct art lecturer, specializes in AI. He said the AI-generated song, Heart of My Sleeve, serves as a great example of the issue. According to uh, Coleman, it sounds remarkably like Drake, but it's not his lyrics. It's not his song. 
Coleman, who's experimented with AI since about 2017 and his role as a gaming developer, said he believed the AI software that produced the song was trained potentially on Drake's voice. Everything about the labeling of its online says that it was uh, an AI song made using Drake's likeness. Coleman says the song was played millions of times across multiple platforms before Apple Music and Spotify removed it early last week. On YouTube, the original version of the song shows a messaging statement. This video is no longer available due to a copyright claim by Universal Music Group. A video including another AI-generated song, this time mimicking rapper Eminem, also made waves online last week. So it's rather interesting to consider that they can mimic uh, not just the sound, but the style of an individual. And we're talking about music, but what about the spoken word? Again, raising serious questions about AI's capability of misleading the public. Under the leadership of President Joe Biden, the White House and the Federal Reserve have started to lay the groundwork for a programmable, trackable, easily manipulated digital currency. It might sound like something from a dystopian science fiction novel, but... It's all too real, and it could soon change life in America forever. Well, in March of last year, the administration released a sweeping executive order that directed numerous federal agencies to crack down on digital assets, including on popular cryptocurrencies, as well as to study the potential development of a central bank digital currency, CBDC. Central Bank Digital Currency. A CBDC would not be a digital version of the existing paper-based dollar, but rather an entirely new currency that would exist exclusively in digital form, meaning an electronic, non-physical form. Well, President Biden also directed the leadership of the, Na- the National Economic Council, National Security Council, Office of Science and Technology Policy, and the Treasury Department to meet regularly with the Federal Reserve to further design a potential CBDC. CBDC. Well, since the flurry of action in September, the administration has worked tirelessly and rather quietly to advance the creation of a central bank digital currency through various working groups, speeches and coordinated efforts with non-governmental groups. Under the various CBDC proposals floated by the administration and Federal Reserve, a U.S. CBDC would be programmable, traceable and designed to promote various left wing social goals, such as improving financial inclusion and equity. It would also be designed to help with transitioning to a net zero emissions economy and improving environmental justice. Well, let me explain. Unlike the um, decentralized cryptocurrency such as Bitcoin, every transaction made using CBDC could be easily traced to individual users by financial institutions, government agencies, and or the Federal Reserve, depending on the details of the final design. Also, because CBDC would be digital and programmable, rules could be imposed that limit spending on approved activities. So if the federal government or the Federal Reserve were to determine that Americans are buying too much gasoline, for example, it could stop people from using CBDCs at gas stations with a few clicks of a computer. Perhaps most disturbing of all, however, is that under most of the um, designs for this new currency, digital currency, discussed by the administration and the Federal Reserve, nearly all forms of ownership of CBDC money would also be strictly limited. Only large institutions such as banks, the federal government or the Federal Reserve could actually have ownership of CBDCs. Everyone else would be prevented from having absolute control over their digital money. That means the in Biden's future, you would 
would not own CBDC money. You'll have no privacy either. Now, I'm going to take a, a bit of a extension here. How exactly would the administration prevent most forms of private ownership of digital money? Well, to best understand the answer to the question, you first need to know important details about existing the existing banking system. Now, currently, when you go to the bank and deposit money into a checking or savings account, you immediately cease to own the money. The cash becomes the property of the bank. In most situations, the bank is required to return that money you provided uh, at your request, but the cash ultimately belongs to the bank until you remove the money from your deposit account. Well, under the current system, there's a way to regain control of your money by withdrawing cash from a deposit account, and privacy laws prevent banks in many situations from giving away details about your financial accounts to third parties, including the government. But because CBDCs would only exist in digital form in a, a deposit account, and because they would be programmed to feed data to the government, There would be no way for you to physically take the CBDCs out of a depository account, store them privately, own them directly, or use them without being surveilled by a large institution. Well, the Biden administration has directly acknowledged that a future where you don't own CBDCs is exactly what it and the Federal Reserve are now considering. For example, in a 2022 report about CBDCs, the Treasury Department stated there are two general architectures for CBDC inter um, intermediation one a single tier which would be direct cbdc with a central bank and two a two-tier cbdc where intermediaries potentially banks or non-bank financial intermediaries would onboard and manage payments while the central bank records account balances in other words and that was rather confusing there's no scenario in which you would be able to store your digital money in a local hard drive or private storage account All your money would be kept by a bank or the Federal Reserve directly, which means they would own all of your CBDC money. Regardless of where your uh, assets are held, it's likely the federal government would have access to data about your purchases and other information. A design choice CBDC supporters say is necessary so that officials can limit criminal activity. Hmm. Well, the only significant privacy questions that remain in the minds of those who support CBDCs, this digital currency, are about the extent of the data collection. If a, a programmable CBDC is rolled out in the near future, you won't own the money and you'll have very little privacy, if any at all. That's uh, great news for those who advocate for bigger government and want more power for large financial institutions. But it could prove to be a catastrophic loss of freedom for the rest of us. Think about that. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Coming up in our second hour, Tim Reinke, author of God, Technology, and the Christian Life. We'll also take a look at France's pension protests and what that might, um, well, harbor for uh, Americans. A female World War II veteran who overcame tremendous hardship during her lifetime, including war, turned 100 this month. She shared memories of raising three siblings, serving her country, bringing up her own eight children, becoming a nurse at age 49, suffering the loss of a son to suicide, and square dancing until she was 92. More than 200,000 women served in the military during World War II, but only about 10,000 of them are still living today, according to the National World War II Museum. One of those women is Dorothy Lassig of Stewardville, Minnesota. She says she wished young people today were a bit sturdier. Well, the ISIS-K terrorist who directed the August 2021 suicide bombing that killed 13 U.S. service members 
during the Biden administration's withdrawal from Afghanistan has been killed by the Taliban. That according to a senior administration official. The official said that the Biden administration has recently become aware that the ISIS-K operative behind the suicide bombing at the Abbey Gate and Hamid Karzai International Airport on the 26th of August 2021 was eliminated in a Taliban operation. The uh, suicide bombing took the lives of 11 Marines and one Navy sailor, one Army soldier. 18 others, U.S. service members, were wounded. The bombing also left more than 150 civilians dead. The Biden administration opted against granting a permit for transporting liquefied natural gas from uh, Pennsylvania to New New Jersey via railroad. The Department of Transportation stated in a federal filing published on Monday that it had rejected a special permit from Energy Transport Solutions, a Missouri-based liquid fuels transportation firm, to renew authorization for LNG transportation. A DOT sub-agency, a Department of Transportation sub-agency, the Pipeline and Hazardous Materials Safety Administration explained Tuesday the decision was in part a result of litigation. Prior to the denial, the project to transport LNG for foreign export was already halted by Energy Transport Solutions as part of a legal settlement with external litigations. The request to transfer LNG to New Jersey was part of a large export project first proposed way back in 2017 by Energy Transport Solutions parent company, New Fortress Energy, a billion-dollar energy infrastructure company. The company's plan for the project included constructing an LNG processing plant and transporting a product via rail uh, to Gibbstown, where it would build an export terminal to send natural gas overseas. U.S. military evacuated official personnel from the embassy in Khartoum, Sudan, Saturday, as civil unrest, crime, terrorism, and armed conflict plagued the country. State Department officials indicate that because of the violence, the U.S. government might not help to evacuate as many as 16,000 Americans who remain in country. Well, that's the U.S. was unprepared and caught off guard is really inexcusable. That's what leading Heritage Foundation foreign policy expert James Carafano said. Since Joe Biden became president, we have evacuated three U.S. embassies. That's unprecedented in modern times. Carafano said the U.S. should be forced, uh, focused rather more on North Africa rather than acting like it doesn't care about the nations there. President Joe Biden withdrew troops from and all embassy personnel from Afghanistan in August of 21 after a 20-year U.S. occupation, leaving the Taliban to take over. He also suspended embassy operations in Ukraine when Russia invaded in February of 22, though the embassy reopened last May. On Saturday, special operations troops evacuated less than 100, should be fewer than 100 people from the embassy in Sudan, and no U.S. government personnel or Marines remain in the U.S. embassy, according to the State Department and Pentagon. Officials. However, media reports show that as many as 16,000 Americans remain in the country. The president said there's an ongoing work to assist Americans in Sudan. Yet statements from the State Department raise questions about whether the administration truly intends to rescue the Americans. After the evacuation of official personnel, the State Department said it cannot provide routine or emergency consular service to U.S. citizens in Sudan due to the current security situation. It includes armed conflict, heavy fighting between various political and security groups. The uh, administration says the situation is violent, volatile and extremely unpredictable, particularly in the capital city of Khartoum. National Security and Foreign Policy Senior Fellow at the Heritage Foundation, Mike Gonzalez, said the National Security Council and the State Department seem caught off guard by a major world conflagration. 
This is a wake-up call that the world is a dangerous place and we should have better national security priorities than flying pride flags from embassies or pushing gender and race theories on other cultures, especially as these issues are highly controversial here at home. Americans left behind in Sudan have little hope of making it home. As the State Department said, the Khartoum airport and Sudan's border with Chad are closed. Ambassador John Bass, Biden's undersecretary of state for management, said Sudan now features an absence of any commercial air, the absence of any charter aircraft capabilities and the absence of really feasible overland road routes to get out of the country. Bass doesn't foresee Sudan's uncertain environment improving in the near future. We don't anticipate those security conditions are going to change in the near term, Bass said in the statement. As a result of that uncertain security picture, as a result of the unavailability of the civilian airport, we don't foresee coordinating a U.S. government evacuation for our fellow citizens in Sudan at this time or in the coming days. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We need to take a quick break, but we'll continue our march through some of the day's headlines. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, Washington state residents rushed to gun stores as lawmakers passed a sweeping ban on assault weapons, however they're defined. Some officials can't actually define them. That will outlaw many popular semi-automatic rifles. The mood at the Washington state capitol was jubilant as Governor Jay Inslee signed a trio of gun control pills, bills, rather, one of which immediately bans the manufacture, purchase and importation of so-called assault weapons. Party safely tonight, the governor told supporters after signing the bill. Sinsley and Attorney General Bob Ferguson, both Democrats, pushed for the gun control package. With the governor's signature, Washington becomes the 10th state to adopt an assault weapons ban. No one needs an AR-15 to protect your family, Inslee said. While surrounded by family members of shooting victims, you only need to kill other families. Hmm. Earlier this session, lawmakers passed a bill that mandates safety training and requires a 10-day waiting period to buy a gun, as well as a bill that requires gun makers and dealers to take reasonable steps, in quotes, to keep their products out of the hands of dangerous individuals. The bill that requires safety training and waiting periods takes effect on the 1st of January 2024. Once upon a time, it was a tragedy to become an orphan. Now, at least in Two deep blue states, it's rather in. In Washington state, both the House and Senate have passed a bill that would allow the State Department of Children, Youth and Families, not the parents, to be the contacts if the child who runs away is trying to get an abortion or a transgender medical procedure. The bill is currently on Democrat Governor Jay Inslee's desk. In California, there's a bill that would let 12-year-olds leave home if a mental health professional okays it, no parental permission required, has passed in the state's assembly and is now winding its way through the state Senate. Is this the future? Well, to be clear, both states currently have legal pathways to help children who have abusive parents. These bills aren't about situations where it is genuinely dangerous for a child to stay with the parents. So it's not about abusive parents. As Washington State Representative Cindy Jacobson, a Republican, noted in the floor speech earlier this month, we have procedures for Department of Children, Youth and Families if children are abused or neglected or if parents kick them out. No, what's going on here isn't about protecting kids. It's about making sure that any child who wants an abortion or transgender medical procedures isn't prevented by their parents. For today's leftists, the importance of gender ideology and abortion on demand apparently trumps the value of parenting. 
As activist Kaylee Triller tweets about the Washington bill, which is, by the way, Senate Bill 5599, basically gives the state the right to kidnap your kids if you don't play along with the gender cult, end quote. Is this really where blue states want to go? Is there no longer bipartisan consensus that parents, not bureaucrats, should be in charge of children? How quickly the imagination has moved away from the traditional view that parents have the best interest of their own children at heart. Well, back in 2012, the Obama campaign set off a firestorm with its Life of Julia slideshow that showed a woman depending on government welfare from childhood to retirement. Julia's entire life is defined by her interactions with the state. Government is everywhere, and each step of her life is tied to a government program, wrote former Education Secretary William Bennett for CNN. Notably absent in her story is any relationship with a husband, a family, a church, a community, except a community garden where she works post-retirement. Instead, the state has taken their place and is her primary relationship. That's a quote from the video. But in a quaint touch, how different the U.S. was in 2012, Julia doesn't ever uh, seem to have... um, about uh, losing custody of her son because she has hesitations about allowing him to pursue medical treatment involving drugs with significant side effects and or surgeries. Back then, the dream was merely financial support for all, even if the cost was a crumbling of our uh, personal relationships and the health of our economy. Well, now the dream from the left includes, and I'm, I don't want to overly generalize, but those who support this notion includes children being free to have abortions and pursue experimental medicine that we are not even clear is in their best interest and can't be reversed and can cause some serious medical uh, complications, even at the cost of severing their ties with the people who likely love them most, their parents. It's not just about an economic government parent. It's about the government actually being the parent. So what it's um, what it's um, with this obsession about allowing minor children to make permanent life altering medical decisions. Well, while um, some like to pretend that they're the party of science, this isn't about some medical consensus on transgenderism. As Dr. Miriam Grossman, a child psychiatrist and author, uh, told the Daily Signal in a podcast interview last year, much of today's medical procedures for children who struggle with gender identity is based on a study out of the Netherlands that provided various gender transition treatments to children, including puberty blockers, hormones and surgeries. Yet American activists pick and choose how they view that study. First of all, the study involved 55 children, all of whom had struggled with gender dysphoria for a significant time period. Secondly, those children had no other mental health issues. Meanwhile, in Europe, instead of relentlessly pushing for gender-affirming care, as it's called, a term that obfuscates the brutal realities of treatment that can sterilize you for life and involves the same drug cancer patients use, there is now caution. In the past few years, European health authorities conducted systematic reviews of evidence for the benefit and risk of puberty blockers and cross-sex hormones. The findings from those reviews that... Um, The certainty of benefits is very low, guided the hand of policymakers there to restrict access to hormones, um, writes the City Journal. Currently, minors in these countries can access puberty blockers and cross-sex hormones only if they meet strict eligibility requirements as set out in the Dutch protocol and only in the context of a tightly controlled research setting says the fellow from the Manhattan Institute. So to recap, in Europe, they're putting more guardrails on this medical treatment for kids, while in America, blue states are making it so that kids can run away from their parents and pursue these uh, treatments on their own. Which position is extreme? 
Well, if you're looking at your mailbox less than two days before ballots were supposed to start going out for the May 16th special election, Multnomah County elections officials have announced that nearly all of the country's ballots will need to be reprinted due to an error delaying their delivery to voters. We're still working to determine the exact timing of ballots delivery, says the Multnomah County Elections Director, Tim Scott, in a statement. The ballot proofing error was um, discovered today, Monday morning, April 24th, and affects every ballot. We're working swiftly to print corrected ballots and mail them to voters. Under Oregon laws, uh, counties cannot begin um, mailing out regular ballots to voters until after the voter registration deadline, which is Three weeks before the election, all ballots must be mailed out by two weeks before an election. In this case, the voter registration deadline is Tuesday. The ballots were scheduled to start going out Wednesday with a final deadline of May the 2nd to get them all in the mail. The county said in a new release Monday that all ballots will still be mailed by the 2nd of May. The error involves the race for the District 3 seat of the Multnomah County Board of Commissioners which was accidentally included on every ballot in the county. Commissioners are elected by district rather than at large, so the race was only supposed to be listed on ballots for voters in District 3. Well, the county is opting to reprint nearly all ballots, including those from District 3, in order to avoid confusion, according to a spokesperson. More than 550,000 ballots need to be reprinted, she said. Multnomah County had 566,866 registered voters in the November 2022 election. The only exception is out-of-state and overseas ballots, which are allowed to be mailed out ahead of the normal start date of the voters' um, If the voters request them, some of those voters may have already received their ballots, the county said, and those voters should still use their original ballots to vote. Well, China is outraged at the Biden administration's plan to steer investment in artificial intelligence away from China and toward other countries, warning that it may take steps to counteract what it calls U.S. bullying in the tech sector. The administration for months has hinted that it's developing an executive order aimed at keeping AI and other technology related investments such as semiconductors and quantum computing out of China in order to help the U.S. maintain its competitive edge. Several reports say the administration may be looking to launch the initiative at a mid-May meeting of the group of seven nations in Japan. But in a briefing last week, a spokesperson for China's Ministry for Foreign Affairs said China is firmly opposed to this idea and accused the U.S. of pursuing selfish interests using economic coercion. Imagine the People's Republic of China accusing the U.S. of using selfish interests. We're going to take a break. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show in our second hour. Tony Reinke, he's the author of God, Technology, and the Christian Life. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, the Biden administration officials have consulted a number of left-wing environmental groups as they craft a rule forcing fossil fuel-fired power plants to substantially curb emissions. Over the last two weeks, senior White House and Environmental Protection Agency officials have met with the organizations, including Climate Action Campaign, Union of Concerned Scientists, Sierra Club, Natural Resources Defense Council, Clean Air Task Force, and Evergreen Action to discuss a highly anticipated plan to tackle power plant emissions, according to the federal filings. Among all those groups, there aren't really any energy experts or electric grid experts or scientists. It's activists who use environmental issues to advance the uh, the Democrat agenda. So says Daniel Turner, the executive director of the Power the Future 
Uh, So it's totally unsurprising that these are the ones calling the shots. It shows who's really pulling the strings at the Biden White House, he continued. In addition to the environmental groups, White House officials also met with representatives from nine Democratic state attorneys general, led by New York and California, the Edison Electric Institute, a trade group that advocates for a green transition, and various utility companies that have installed a large share of the nation's green energy capacity in recent years. The revelation that top administration officials have engaged with Leading left-wing climate groups to craft the power plant rule comes days after reports indicate the EPA is prepared to issue the most aggressive ever power plant emissions reduction plan. The White House said Monday that President Biden would veto bipartisan legislation reversing a rule allowing Chinese solar panel manufacturers to sidestep tariffs. The Biden veto promise uh, comes less than a year after he announced his administration would implement a two-year pause on the enforcement of solar panel anti-circumvention tariffs amid pressure from environmental groups and the clean energy industry. Months earlier, the Commerce Department had opened a probe into whether Chinese manufacturers were illegally routing solar panels through Southeast Asia to avoid U.S. tariffs. Then in December, the Commerce Department released preliminary investigation findings showing that four large solar companies had, in fact, routed products through Cambodia, Malaysia and Vietnam to circumvent duties. But the Biden's tariff enforcement moratorium, in effect, the agency hasn't enforced trade laws prohibiting such activity under pressure. This week marks the biggest test yet for the speakership of House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. The Republican from California, McCarthy needs to show that he can keep his members together to approve the Republican version of a debt ceiling plan. This this is not, rather, a zero-sum game for the Speaker. A passage of the bill would mark a significant win for the California Republican. McCarthy would show he could keep his narrow majority and pass a big piece of legislation. But the political chits that McCarthy banks with a prospective win are not equivalent to the points he could lose if Republicans struggle to pass the bill. A stumble would represent a major loss for McCarthy. Moreover, failure by Republicans to move their own plan would rattle the markets and send an ominous signal about what to expect later this summer as the sides fight over the debt ceiling. President Biden remains on the sidelines, at least for now. The book Gender Queer topped a library group's list of challenged books. According to the American Library Association, the book A Memoir was the number one title on the most challenged books in 2022 for the second year in a row. The book has been challenged by four LGBTQIA plus and sexually explicit conduct uh, content, rather, which I can't explain to you because it would be inappropriate and is forbidden by the FCC to talk about the explicit content in these school libraries. Each year, the ALL's, ALA's Office for Intellectual Freedom creates a list of the top 10 most challenged books to keep the public informed about censorship in libraries and schools. The lists are based on information from reports filed by library professionals and community members and from news stories published throughout the United States, the ALA says on its website. Democratic presidential candidate Marianne Williamson and others are criticizing a lack of Democratic primary debates as undemocratic and unfortunate as President Biden announced his bid for re-election. The DNC plans no primary debates as though there are simply no other candidates, no other ideas we should discuss about ways to win in 2024 or other ideas we should discuss about ways to repair the country. Too many people are too smart to accept this, Williamson said. Nina Turner, a former Ohio state senator and co-chair of Bernie Sanders 2020 presidential campaign, said the DNC's decision was undemocratic and that it robs voters of choice. 
Republican presidential candidate Nikki Haley isn't sad to see the departure of Don Lemon, who was suddenly terminated by CNN just hours after his final on-air appearance on Monday. While CNN's official statement said that Lemon and the network parted ways, the embattled liberal anchor alleged he found out uh, about his dismissal through his agent and took a swipe at CNN's leadership. A spokesperson disputed Lemon's statement as inaccurate. Haley reacted to the stunning media news by taking a not-so-veiled shot at Lemon, promoting her post-my-prime campaign cozies, which is an insulated sleeve used to keep canned or bottled drinks cold, featuring cans of lemonade. A great day for women everywhere. Now, let's get uh, men out of sports. Out of women's sports, still in my prime, Haley tweeted. Syria's murderous dictator brought in from the cold amid failing U.S. foreign policy in the Middle East. The efforts of some key members of the Arab League this month to restore membership to the Syrian regime after its 2011 suspension over its mass killings of civilians has shined a new spotlight on the Biden administration's Middle East policy and influence, according to regional experts. Syria's dictator, President Bashar al-Assad, has waged a scorched-earth campaign against civilians and pro-democracy activists, resulting in an estimated 500,000-plus deaths and the use of chemical warfare to wipe out anti-regime Syrians. The meteoric rise in the everyday use of artificial intelligence has also raised the risk that workers inadvertently or otherwise could leak sensitive company data to new AI-powered tools like ChatGPT, whether their company has banned their use or not. In fact, it's already happening. Samsung recently experienced a series of leaks after employees purportedly pasted source code into their The new bot potentially exposing proprietary information. Serial tech entrepreneur Wayne Chang has worked in the AI space for years and anticipated that breaches like Samsung's would also rise as workers embrace the new technology. Well, now he's rolled out an AI tool of his own that blocks leaks by preventing chatbots and large language models or LLMs from taking company secret. LLM Shield uh, was just released this past week. And it alerts organizations whenever an attempt is made to upload sensitive information. Susan Rice will step down as White House domestic policy advisor. President Biden announced on Monday praising her work on some of the more divisive issues for his administration, including immigration and health care. Rice, who's 58, previously served as the national security advisor and ambassador to the United Nations under President Barack Obama and was reported to have been considered as Biden's running mate in 2020. Rice has been uh, responsible for the Afghan surrender, the Ukraine proxy war, Taiwan, uh, the Taiwanese escalation, and most recently the decision to abandon thousands of Americans in Sudan. Well, Disney is undergoing massive company-wide layoffs. They're laying off several thousand workers across the company this week in the second and largest wave of cuts as part of the media giant's previously announced plan to slash its workforce by 7,000 employees. The latest rounds of job cuts with uh, will impact ESPN, Disney's entertainment division, Disney Parks, and its experiences and product division as part of a larger workforce reduction plan announced in February by the chief executive, Bob Iger, in an aim to save $5.5 billion in costs, the company said. The Wall Street Journal reported that Disney is set to lay off ESPN employees as it tries to figure out the sports network's next chapter. ESPN has been a moneymaker for Disney for years, but its subscriber base has eroded as more people cancel their cable subscriptions. Disney acquired majority control of the sports channel in 95. 
It uh, explored the idea last year of spinning off ESPN, but ultimately decided against it, Mr. Iger said in February. We've got news and traffic coming up in just a few moments, but I do want to remind you that in the second hour, we're going to share a conversation with Tony Reinke. He's the author of God, Technology, and the Christian Life. The book is published by Crossway. He'll join us uh, in the uh, second hour. We'll also talk about what's happening with France's pension and the protests that have followed and how this might um, uh, portend trouble in America if we don't change some things here. Also want to remind you or maybe tell you for the first time that on Thursday we're going to be featuring India Partners. Uh, their radiothon will be Thursday and there's some exciting news developments that uh, really is a result of your support historically and opportunities to support this ministry moving forward as well. That's coming up on Thursday here on the Georgine Rice Show. News and traffic up next. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. James Blend is producing Dave King Engineering. Coming up in our next segment, a conversation with Tony Ranke. He's the author of God technology and the Christian life. We'll also take a look at what's happening in France as they're protesting uh, pension reform there and what that might mean about the future here in this country. All of that coming up this hour. Well, President Biden was ripped by critics on Monday when he made a statement suggesting the children of parents across the nation belong to the whole country to raise rather than just their own families. His statement drew sharp criticism on social media from politicians and parents alike, blasting him, suggesting the state and political left had ownership over the children of the country. There's no such thing as someone else's child. Our nation's children are all our children, the president said. A San Francisco Target store has been putting all of its products on lockdown amid a shoplifting crisis that's crippled the retailer in the Golden Gate City. And House lawmakers recently passed the Protection of Women and Girls in Sports Act, despite not one Democrat voting in favor of the bill that will keep women from having to compete against transgender athletes, read biological men. Well, Riley Gaines had the perfect response to the situation, particularly to one state representative, uh, Glenn Ivey of Maryland. Um, He made it clear that he is siding with the biological boys and the men destroying women's sports with a ludicrous tweet after the bill was passed by the House. According to Ivy, the bill would mean the focused, uh, rather the forced inspection of student athletes, which is an egregious violation of a student's personal dignity. President Joe Biden is expected to announce and did his reelection earlier today, despite polling showing that even fellow Democrats don't want him to run. On the other hand, not many people want uh, his would be opponent. Donald Trump to run either the rematch, not so tasteful. Seven U.S. Republican senators nationwide demanded answers from the administration on Monday, asking if officials were aware of the United Nations backed report suggesting global leaders normalize pedophilia by allowing children to legally decide on engaging in sexual activity with adults. Senators John Kennedy and Senator Marco Rubio have demanded answers from the administration about the U.N.'s recent sponsorship of a report that asserts that minor children can consent to that kind of relationship with adults. The U.N.'s effort to normalize sex with minor children is barbaric. It violates kids' basic human rights and ignores our responsibility to protect them from abuse. American taxpayer dollars shouldn't fund pedophilia or any organization that promotes it, Kennedy said of the report. President Biden hosted the so-called Tennessee Three for gun control. 
He hosted the infamous uh, trio at the White House as props for his anti-firearms agenda. He used three lawless, self-aggrandizing state lawmakers to gaslight the American public and blame guns rather than criminals for violent crime. Two of the three were booted from the Tennessee legislature for their part in leading an insurrection, I mean a protest takeover of the state house, a chamber that the president um, praised as standing up for kids and for our communities. Afghanistan is slated to become a terrorist launch pad. Is it uh, uh, 2001 rather all over again? Well, thanks to the surrender and retreat that certainly seems to be the case in Afghanistan with the Taliban, which is once again controlling the country and making it a haven for jihadi terrorists. Via the recent leaks of classified information, it has come to light that the Pentagon was aware of at least 15 terror plots being directed by ISIS leaders in Afghanistan that targeted embassies, churches, business centers, and FIFA World Cup soccer tournaments. President Biden is leaving more Americans behind. Speaking of the world becoming more dangerous, civil unrest and violence has become has been growing in Sudan over the last several weeks. It has gotten so bad that this Saturday, this past Saturday, U.S. military personnel evacuated the U.S. Embassy in Khartoum. However, more than 16,000 American citizens are currently in Sudan with no way of escape. Good news, uh, the New York Times can't stand a University of Virginia alumnus who has stood staunchly against the woke diversity, equity and inclusion agenda has become a member on the board of trustees at the school. The New York Times is fit to be tied. Bert Ellis, a wealthy man who's long been a faithful supporter of UVA and co-owns a restaurant on the campus named The Spot, helped found an alumni group known as the Jefferson Council to counter the radical left at the school. This is our only opportunity to change or reverse the path of wokeness, he says, that has overtaken our entire university, writing regarding the mission of the Jefferson Council. President Biden alarms the public with the assertion that there is no such thing as someone else's child. An Arkansas judge ordered Hunter Biden appear in court to answer laptop questions. A Georgia prosecutor says the Trump probe charging decisions are coming this summer. The Supreme Court deals a blow to oil companies being sued for climate change and an health um, uh, organization official warned of the high risk of biological hazard in Sudan after the fighters seized a laboratory. Riot police descended on Mantan- Montana's, oh, that's Montana's capital after a left wing protest disrupted proceedings in the state House of Representatives in support of transgender lawmaker Zoe Zephyr, the Democrat who was censored by the body last week. Multiple reports have uh, have said, according to the Independent, protesters were arrested Monday when police from the Montana Highway Patrol and Lewis and Clark County Sheriff's Office attempted to uh, break up the group's um, packing the observation galley of the House chamber. The group chanted, let her speak for nearly half an hour, bringing the session to a halt in support of ending the censor of the lawmaker. Zephyr, a bisexual and first transgender lawmaker in Montana's legislative history, drew criticism Tuesday after telling Republicans during a House floor debate on amendments to Senate Bill 99, which would prohibit sex change treatments for minors, that they have blood on their hands, a notion lawmakers hope will be present, the lawmaker rather, hopes will be present in their prayers. Her comments led to the House voting in favor of the lawmaker's censure, citing hate-filled testimony. North Dakota on Monday adopted one of the strictest anti-abortion laws in the country as Republican Governor Doug Burgum signed legislation banning the procedure at six weeks of pregnancy, even in cases of rape and incest. The bill clarifies and refines 
uh, existing state law and reaffirms North Dakota as a pro-life state, Burgum said in a statement. Bud Light sales are down 17 percent after the Dillon-Mulvaney partnership. On this day in history, 1792, the guillotine is first used to execute highwayman Nicholas Pelletier. 1831, the New York and Harlem Railway is incorporated in New York City. 1846, the Mexican-American War ignites as a result of disputes over claims to Texas boundaries. 1859, on this day, work begins on the Suez Canal in Egypt. 1898, the U.S. declares war on Spain. 1901, New York becomes the first state to require license plates for cars. The fee, $1. 1928, a seeing eye dog is used for the first time. 1945, delegates from about 50 countries meet in San Francisco to organize the United Nations. 1953, on this day, Dr. James D. Watson and Francis H. C. Crick suggest the double helix structure of DNA. On this day in 1954, the prototype manufacture of the first solar battery is announced by Bell Laboratories in New York City. 1957, operations began at the first experimental sodium nuclear reactor. 1959, St. Louis Seaway is opened to shipping. The waterway connects the Great Lakes and the Atlantic Ocean. 1967, on this day, Colorado Governor John Love signs the first law legalizing abortion in the U.S. The law is limited to therapeutic abortions when agreed to unanimously by a panel of three physicians. 1971, the country of Bangladesh is established. 1988, in Israel, John Ivan the Terrible Demoniac is sentenced to death as a Nazi war criminal. On this day in 1990, Sandinista rules end in Nicaragua. And finally, on 2003, Winnie Mandela, the anti-apartheid leader and ex-wife of former President Nelson Mandela, is sentenced to four years in prison for her conviction on fraud and theft charges. Up next, a conversation with Tony Reinke, author of God, Technology, and the Christian Life. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, from smartphones to self-driving cars to space travel, new technologies can inspire us. But the breakneck pace of change can also frighten us. So how do Christians walk by faith through the innovations of Silicon Valley? And how does God relate to our most powerful innovators? Well, to build a biblical theology of technology, journalist and tech optimist Tony Ranke, he examines nine key texts from Scripture to show how the world's discoveries are divinely orchestrated. Ultimately, what we believe about God determines how we respond to human invention. And with the help of several theologians and inventors throughout history, he dispels 12 common myths in the church and offers 14 ethical convictions to help Christians live by faith in an age of big tech. Well, my guest is Tony Ranke. He is a journalist. He serves as senior teacher and host of the Ask Pastor John podcast for DesiringGod.org. He's the author of Lit, A Christian Guide to Reading Books, Competing Spectacles, and 12 Ways Your Phone is Changing You. And that's one worth reading. The book, God, Technology, and the Christian Life, is published by Crossway. He joins us by phone. And uh, welcome. I'm delighted to have you with us. Yeah, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Well, this is so fascinating. I think if you were to ask the man on the street what the Bible has to say about technology and innovation, we might scratch, he might scratch his head and wonder, <laughs> is there any reference at all? And yet, um, your book points out that yes, there is in scripture a guide for us, 
um, in the 21st century as we consider technology and how influential it has become and how we ought to uh, view that. You um, decided to write a theology of technology. Tell us a little bit about what that means. Yeah, it's basically you know, for a century or so now, the church's theologians have told us that faith and technology really don't belong in the same conversation. Uh, you know, human innovation is Babel-like, it's worldly, it's wicked, it's tainted top to bottom, and it's only destructive, you know, at least that's the sense that a lot of us have gotten. And so whenever you speak of human tech, you know, leave God out of the conversation, and that's largely what Christians have done. And now we live in, inside the, you know, the, the most technologically advanced uh, society the world has ever seen, and many Christians work inside major tech centers. And uh, now the church is not surprisingly mute. We don't know what to say now in this age. And uh, for myself and for a, a growing number of younger Christians, we're asking the question of, of maybe we got something wrong here. Maybe something got lost along the way. And so uh, what I'm trying to do is go back to the Bible, go back to Genesis to Revelation and, and get a better sense of, of what is God's relationship to human innovation and flourishing. Um, and there's a lot of cues that we find in the text. Well, I appreciate, um, you know, you're using the word um, innovation, because when we think about uh, technology in the 21st century, we're talking, we're thinking about electronics for the most part. We don't remember what came before it that were innovations in their time that may have raised questions at that time. Um, You offer some key texts from Scripture that gives us some insight, not only into what the word says, but God's thinking and heart with regard to man's innovation. I think we begin probably at the Tower of Babel and sometimes think, well, that innovation kind of tells us all we need to know about future innovations in our time and back then. Is that sufficient? Well, no, it's definitely not. And uh, we have to go back before that to like page two or three of our Bibles into Genesis chapter four. And we need to trace out Cain's lineage. Why did God protect Cain's life when he is so worthy of being executed for the murder of his brother? Uh, and in the text, you have to be patient with the text and let it flow out of, uh, of, of what it says, because what we find out is that God is going to preserve Cain's life because Cain's great-great-grandchildren are going to initiate three massive industries, the industry of cattle breeding, what we may think of today as rudimentary genetics uh, and professional music, and metallurgy, the making of metal tools and weapons, all made possible by God's protective mercies over Cain's lineage. Cain is like the, the non-believer in the early part of the Bible. He's the, he's the rebel. He's the sinner. He's the, he's the non, non-Jewish. He's just not—he has no faith. I mean, he does not trust in God. He's a rebel. And God chooses this man— uh, to bring about the first three major industries in world history. And that's before the Tower of Babel. Now, the Tower of Babel comes along, and humans use technology. Big bricks are a new technology. It's something that man discovered, man invented, and man used that to try to idolize himself, try to um, glorify humanity in building a tower in a city. And that was sinful. That was wrong. That was against God's word. And so God breaks into that story. He hacks the whole thing. So that we don't only have one city, but that we have tens of thousands of cities now. And so that's uh, that's one way that he breaks in. But it keeps going on from there. I mean, it goes on to, you know, David and Goliath are two two guys that go toe-to-toe. They're two technologists. Uh, Goliath, of course, has his own technology, and David chooses a sling, which is another technology. It's a, it's a way to amplify human power. He's going to amplify the power of his arm into a sling, and he's going to basically play the role of a sniper. Uh, he be, he, he's the superior technologist in a one-on-one type of a battle. 
And so, I mean, those are just the early chapters of the Bible. And then you get into Job and the Psalms and Isaiah and uh, then the New Testament and Revelation 18 and Babylon. I mean, the the story is so expansive on what we can learn about God's relationship to human innovation. It it truly is uh, unspeakable. Well, I appreciate that you you uh, force us to think differently about those innovations because they're primitive. We don't often credit them for yes. what they were at the time. And I love the, what you say about God determining how we um, No, That's not what I'm thinking. It's um, uh, the world's discoveries are divinely orchestrated. We don't think about yeah. God's hand at work in permitting and even in inspiring these innovations that we have all benefited by and benefit yeah. today. Yeah, and this is why I think in the last 100 years that was lost. But before that, it was it was in the uh, Reformed theologians of the 15th century, 16th century, 17th century, 18th century, even up to Abraham Kuyper in the Netherlands, who uh, developed this idea of common grace. Uh, a guy like John Calvin went so far as to say the same Holy Spirit that regenerates believers is the same Holy Spirit bringing about human innovation for human flourishing. Now, that to us, that will strike us as crazy talk uh, to speak in that kind of a strong language. But that's how a guy, a reformer like John Calvin was already talking about uh, common grace uh, back in his age. And Abraham Kuyper develops that out. But then by the time you get into World War One and World War Two, that common grace language really recedes in the background. And the church really struggles to talk about common grace, especially when we have these new powers of destruction. Right. So we, once you get into the world wars, now when you talk about human, human innovation, we're talking about being able to kill at scale. Mm-hmm. And so it just becomes a more complex conversation when you have a nuclear bomb. Um, and so I can see why the conversation kind of fell off the table. But it, the, that, that conversation over common grace is in Scripture and it should still be in the church today. You describe yourself as a tech optimist. Uh, what are some of the myths about technology that we as believers often embrace? Well, the, I mean, the, the myth that stands out to me is the one that uh, human innovation is somehow an inorganic sort of imposition that we've pressed on to creation. It's sort of like we, we sort of force creation to give us an iPhone or we force creation to give us nuclear power or we force creation to give us social media or we force creation to give us um, gasoline or we, you know, we, for, we somehow bring this will of ours into creation and sort of invent things out of, out of nothing, out of scratch. And that's just not how it works. And what I showed throughout the book is that God has actually put in place nine different limiters on what we can invent. And in fact, we can do very few things. <laughs> for, a, for a finite mind like us, it seems like it's infinite. It seems like we can do anything we want. But to an infinite God, what we can actually do with his creation is heavily limited. It's highly channeled. Um, ask anyone who's tried to start a, a startup in Silicon Valley or someone who owns a, uh, a patent of how, how hard it is to actually make money on a startup idea or a patent. Very few people can do it. Very few people actually make money off a startup, off of a patent, because there are so many factors involved in limiting what we can actually produce and make. And that's one of the arguments that I make. I think there's nine limiters that we see in Scripture where we don't have this sort of unlimited palette to do whatever we want. It's highly constrained by God. 
Well, and I think that's part of the fear that we often have is that there is no restraint, that if given enough time and given the appropriate um, resources that we can do anything. And that is kind of a frightening thought to many. But as you point out, the scripture makes it clear that is not the case. The sovereignty of God doesn't somehow uh, stand apart from and aside from uh, technological advances. That's exactly right. And we see this in Isaiah 28 when God is telling us how farmers learn how to use tools, how to make tools, and then use those tools to actually bring about a crop and to bring about grain that will be turned into bread. Um, The tools are actually coded into the created orders. And we see that in Isaiah 28. So it's as if the creator is teaching the farmer how to farm. I mean, it's so direct. The language is so direct. And God is teaching farmers all across the world how to do farming because they're in this um, dialogue with creation and what creation makes possible. And then you get into Isaiah 54. Now we're into the most scary tech, the most scary, uh, most powerful war tech in the world in the hands of the people you don't want it in the hands of. Isaiah 54, God says, I am governing it. I'm there. I'm not gone. Don't buy into the godless dystopian vision of the world that the world may have. I'm there, even in the most powerful technologies being used for destructive purposes, God is there. And of course, you know, in Acts chapter 2, when we, when we see the apostles interpreting the, the crucifixion of Christ by nails, by this metallurgy, by this technology uh, that the Romans had, um, God is orchestrating even the crucifixion of his son by the use of this technology. And so we see even in the greatest expression of evil humanity has ever devised, and we see it in, uh, in, in Babel as well, which is another um, expression of, of uh, sinful man, God is there. He hasn't left us. He's not gone. He's not an absentee creator. Um, and he's going to turn those things for good, and he's going to sovereignly orchestrate them. And I think that's sort of a vision of technology that gets lost when we get mm-hmm. scared of mm-hmm. Elon Musk, scared of Silicon Valley, scared of what's next. Now, there are scary things, and we need to be aware. We don't need to be naive about how things uh, influence us, but we do need the confidence to know that God is there. He hasn't left us. Amen. We're talking uh, this afternoon with Tony Ranke. He is the author of a fascinating book that I would recommend, God, Technology, and the Christian Life. We'll continue our conversation in just a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I'm continuing my conversation with Tony Ranke. He is the author of God, Technology, and the Christian Life. It's really a fascinating uh, book that reminds us that technology just uh, doesn't just involve electricity in the 20th century. Uh, it really began at the very beginning. And as we see uh, God's sovereignty in play, it helps us to perhaps think differently about the technology that we live with in the 21st century, much of which can be rather troubling when it's misused. Now, how should Christians think about technological advancements, particularly when the innovators' motives are not consistent with uh, human flourishing? Yeah, that's a great question. There are, you know, worrisome innovations, and that's what we get, you know, when, when humans are able to invent and, and, and do so sinfully, that we're going to create things that are destructive. We're going to think, you know, create things that are self-destructive. And that's just a part of the reality of the, the life in the fallen uh, world that we, we live in. We seek to honor God in all ways. Um, but that's not true of all people. And so there are a lot of worrisome technologies. When you, you think of like uh, artificial intelligence, I think is the big one that mm-hmm. a lot of people talk about. And we need to talk about things like that. And 
you know, social media, um, isn't that destroying the social fabric of the democracy? I mean, that's a big question that the church needs to address. And isn't the metaverse, this new, this new privatized surveillance state, isn't that a problem? And uh, isn't Amazon you know, growing into a monopoly and killing uh, the uh, market balance that we need for pricing? Um, aren't robots and AI going to take over all of our jobs? Will we survive in the workforce in the future if we don't have some sort of a computer interface with our brains? Um, you know, there's so many scary things. Like the heart of a genetically modified pig was just recently yes. transplanted into a man. Did you see that? Yes. <laughs> it's incredible, you know. And so the immediacy of hot headlines these really drive the tech conversation in Christians. And these are big and important questions, all of them. Uh, but it, they also make it nearly impossible for us to build out a robust theology of technology because the immediacy of these concerning things just limit our minds to a very, you know, man-centric approach to the world. You know, look at this one scary tech. What do you think of it? And uh, very quickly you realize that just God is left outside the conversation. He's a non-factor. I think that's really what I'm going after with this book is the significance of being able to step back from the headlines and actually ask, okay, what's missing in our theology? What needs to be built back into how we think of the world uh, in order for us to eventually address those immediate concerns in faith and with an informed understanding of, of what the Bible teaches us? And that's what I'm trying to do in this book is, is I do sprinkle in some of the immediate questions, but more importantly, I study sort of the greatest technological revolution uh, the world has, has seen before ours, uh, roughly 1860 to 1913, mm -hmm. you know, between sort of the Civil War and World War One, um, And it's just incredible to see medical technology and vaccines and uh, transportation and electronic media began and photography and video and airplanes took off. And uh, it's just incredible to look at that age. And so I think sometimes it's helpful to just get out of our age and to go back into mm -hmm. an earlier age and see what God gave us, uh, because we feel less threatened, I think, by those technologies, even though there are huge debates in the church. Uh, you know, the lightning rod is one that, you know, uh, is most interesting to me. In 1750, when Ben Franklin was, uh, you know, inventing the, the lightning rod, I mean, he got a lot of pushback. Um, you know, you're stealing God's thunder. You're taking away his means of chastening us. Um, and uh, it was a really fascinating era to be a Christian because um, the fear was Ben Franklin's rod would just supercharge earthquakes in the future. And in fact, uh, not long after Ben Franklin started using the lightning rod, there was an earthquake in New England. And people said, aha, see, you just diverted God's, um, God's wrath into the ground, and now you've supercharged the earthquakes of the future. And so those kind of debates in the church, we may look at those a little bit humorously now uh, at, the, at what splits church. But what we have to realize is we're in the middle of like an unfolding tech tree. You know, technology is always developing. Um, things came before and things are going to come after, and we're in the middle. We're in like a research and development lab. It's the world <laughs> that we live in, you know, and there's new technology being made that have to be adopted, um, and some that aren't going to help us flourish, and some that will. And we're trying to figure that out. You know, how do you respond to a global pandemic? Is this vaccine the right one? Maybe not. Maybe probably something much better is going to come in the future. Like, how do you do that? We're in the midst of this um, research and development, which is one of the things that I think a lot of Christians don't realize. I mean, we're not trying to pronounce final judgments on all these technologies we have today. We're seeing, okay, they're developing. They're, uh, they can be gifts, 
they can be a curse, but they can be gifts as well. And we're trying to work, work them out in real time. And it's, it's, it's complicated, um, but it's, it's never done apart from God's sovereign orchestration. Mm, which is the most important thing to remember in the midst of yeah. that whirlwind. You offer um, some common myths uh, and you dispel some common myths in the church with regard to technology. But you also offer, and I really appreciated this, um, ethical convictions to help Christians live by faith in an age of big tech. And I think we desperately uh, need that. We we are overwhelmed by not only the present technology, but where it's going and what's what lays ahead. Can you talk a little bit about the, and you offer 14 of them, but ethical convictions to help us live by faith in this age that um, can seem overwhelming? Yeah, absolutely. There's a lot to say. Um, yeah. I think the critiques, the, criti- the critiques of Christians um, uh, by atheists say, you know, Christians don't have anything to say in the tech age because the Bible doesn't talk about genetics. The Bible doesn't talk about artificial intelligence. The Bible doesn't talk about robots. And therefore, the Bible is irrelevant for the tech age. And uh, so a lot of that section, which is the last chapter of the book, is pushback against that whole idea uh, that somehow the, the Bible is irrelevant. It's relevant because what technology does is it simply raises old um, uh, old ethical dilemmas. Like, what does it mean to be a neighbor? What does it mean to flourish as a human? What does it mean to have uh, to not exploit the poor, the poor? What does it mean to kill an enemy in war? What does it mean to um, care for those who are humans at conception? What does it mean to be a woman and not a man? What does it mean to be a parent? What does it mean to be a child? What does it mean to be a member in a local church? What about personal privacy and religious freedoms? All of those things are sort of perennial issues that come up over and over and over as the technologies uh, change over time. They're perennial questions, and the Bible addresses all of those. And so basically in those 14, uh, just to sort of speak broadly about those mm-hmm. 14 points is what I'm trying to show is the Bible is relevant, super relevant for the digital age in, in, in these 14 ways. And it's really an extension of what I was doing in 12 Ways Your Phone is Changing You, my earlier book on specifically on digital media is just showing like <laughs> all the dilemmas that we we face when it comes to, you know, Instagram and spending too much time on TikTok, or Snapchat, whatever the, the medium is, is just raising like Jesus's commands back into the forefront of our minds. Like, uh, what does it mean to flourish? It means listening to the Savior, listening to what he says about distractions, listening to him about what it means to love our neighbor, love our God. Like, these questions just come up over and over again. Um, They're just cyclical in kind of an ecclesiastical kind of a way. Um, And they're they're so relevant because they're, they're just the perennial questions. Yeah, yeah. You write in the book that a total tech disengagement is coming. What do you mean by that? It's it's hard to imagine that possibility, yeah. but what do you mean by that? <laughs> what I found when I was writing this book, uh, God, Technology, and the Christian Life, is that as I was trying to understand uh, a biblical theology of technology, meaning taking the theme of, of technology and going Genesis to Revelation canonically through the whole Bible, mm-hmm. what I realized at some point in my research was I was just basically doing a biblical theology of the city. That's all I was doing. And so in the, in the biblical storyline, technology and the city are just one storyline woven together. And so what that means is when you get to the end of, of the Bible, when you get to um, uh, Babylon, uh, the city, the biggest, most technologically advanced, most opulent city the world has ever seen in um, Revelation chapter 18, 
What that means is this apex of technology, this apex of wealth, this apex of comfort is going to be interrupted and judged by God in the end. We know that from from his word. Babel is the city of all cities. It's the it's the composite of all our cities. And it, what we read in that text is that God calls his people out of the city before he judges it. And the angels are actually the ones who call God's people out of Babylon before he judges it. And so you can think about this, you know, through rapture language, if that's kind of the uh, the language that you would use, or just the tech disengagement, which is kind of how I would talk about it. But there comes a point in time when God's church is going to be called out of the city. We're going to walk away from whatever gadgets we have at that time, whatever houses we have at that time, whatever vehicles we have at that time. We're going to we're going to step out of the city, and God is going to come down and judge finally uh, man's cities, man's epicenter of rebellion, and He's going to put in their place something better, a city that He's designed and He has built, and He is going to place in its place, and that's the the new creation to come that we long for and, and can't wait for. But what that means is that. We now have a vision for the technologies in our life, like our computers, our TVs, our smartphones, our microphones, our telephones, our microwaves, our dishwashers, um, the gasoline we burn in our cars that are so techn- technologically advanced. Mm-hmm. Like all of the things that we have, we will eventually um, turn away from. And that, I think, when we look at, at Revelation 18, it's a, it's a good reminder that one day we are going to be called out of the city, called away from our technologies. And uh, in, in some sense, this is why I admire the Amish and the Mennonites, because they've already done that in, in some sense. Mm-hmm. It, I think they've done that a little bit too early, but, <laughs> but I do admire that they did it, you know, and that they've stepped out of the city and they've stepped out of the technological uh, revolution that we're experiencing. Now, I don't think we have to do it yet, but at some point we will. And um, the angels will make that clear. God will make that clear when that transition is is to come. But even now, it helps us understand the place of our gadgets and our devices. Yes, we use them to serve God. It's a stewardship. Everything we've been given is a stewardship to to honor God, to glorify Him, and to serve our neighbor. Uh, but there will be a complete tech disengagement one day when we walk out of our cities. Mm. Well, the book is titled God, Technology, and the Christian Life. It's absolutely fascinating. I've never thought about uh, technology and innovation in quite the same way, and certainly not in the context of Scripture. And I would encourage anyone who looks at our age with wonder and <laughs> scratches their head to read the book yeah. because it does help us to recognize the Scriptures have lots to say about the time we're in and how we're connected with the, the history of mankind and innovation. Uh, I want to commend you for the book, and thank you so much for taking time to talk with us about it here today. It's been my honor, Georgine. Thank you. Oh, by the way, where can our listeners uh, yeah. best find your book? Um, it's uh, it's on Amazon.com, of course, and uh, it can also be purchased for 50% off at Westminster Books Online. Excellent. Westminster Books Online. Yep. Tony Ranke, thank you so much. Really enjoyed the conversation. My joy. Thank you. Bye-bye. Yeah, really a fascinating uh, book and to see how scripture is woven throughout human innovation, those things that we have benefited by and those things we regret and fear, uh, all addressed in God, Theology, and the Christian Life, published by Crossway, by the way, if you'd like to pick that up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment to wrap things up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. Well, Americans may still have time to reverse course if they learn from the mistakes the French have made 
on unfunded retirement programs. So writes August Mayrat, uh, saying that as the Democrats push for more spending in their new budget, Republicans in the House are having yet another debate about raising the debt ceiling. Well, the topic of the uh, national debt tends to elicit shrugs and yawns for most Americans, but maintaining current spending levels carries enormous consequence for everyone. If anyone doubts this, they need only to look at France to see what awaits them in the near future. And although most of the news on France is centered around President Emmanuel Macron's visit to China, there's something much more consequential that's happening back in his home country. For weeks now, millions of Frenchmen have protested Macron's decision to raise the retirement age from 62 to 64. Hundreds of them have been injured or arrested, with some clashes escalating into riots. Now, many unions have struck it uh, in uh, solidarity, even for the French, for whom protesting and striking is something of a national pastime. The situation is dire. Now, there are a few ways to interpret this. For most conservatives, this is yet another opportunity to deride the French who seem allergic to hard work. Just seven years ago, protests erupted after Macron considered adding a few hours to the legally mandated 35-hour work week. It doesn't seem to occur to the French that retiring so early and living decades longer at the government's expense is simply unsustainable. Also, the problem is exacerbated by a low birth rate that will result in a dwindling number of workers supporting an increasing number of retirees. Well, that said, those on the left have expressed more sympathy for the protesters since they're forced to work more years while the wealthy aren't making any kind of sacrifice. Well, true, the French retirement system may go insolvent at the current rate, but that doesn't necessarily mean that Macron has a uh, has to raise the retirement age. Instead, he could allocate more public funds to pensions or he could raise taxes, at least on the wealthy, since most of the French already pay exorbitant taxes. By raising the retirement age for employees, he's fairly favoring the rich elites over the poor working class. Or at least so they argue. Then there are critics somewhere in the populist camp, a kind of middle ground between pro-market conservatives and pro-government leftists, who take issue with the uh, the way Macron is implementing these measures. Essentially, he circumvented any debate on the issue and forced these changes through an executive council. Well, this kind of anti-democratic authoritarianism is becoming more common and will soon become the norm in generous welfare states going bankrupt. As Malcolm... Cayun recently argued in Compact, if Macron senses that France is slowly becoming ungovernable without extraordinary and politically dubious executive measures, he probably isn't wrong and he is far from the only Western leader to face this quandary. Close quote. Well, sadly, even though the French are understandably taking a stance once again, it's unlikely that they'll prevail this time. At best, they can delay the inevitable just a little while longer at the cost of ruining their country with ongoing strikes, riots and vandalism. Or they can face reality, accept the change and move on. One hopes that uh, France would finally reconsider their trust in the government and seek out an alternative. But by now, too many of them have been conditioned into subject or rather abject dependency. If Macron and his party are cutting entitlement spending, the most the French can think to do is gravitate to the politician or more accurately demagogue who promises not to touch entitlements like nationalist Marine Le Pen or socialist Jean-Luc I'm not even going to attempt the last name. As for the politicians who promise to reduce this dependency, restore freedoms and make France great again, they will always lose. Such was the case with presidential candidate Eric Zemmour, who couldn't even make it to the runoff in the last election. 
Well, the interesting thing about all of this is the fact that there are parallels to the U.S. Even though most Americans are tempted to treat this as a French problem, they should know this issue will be coming to them very fast. Well, us fast. American entitlement programs such as Social Security and an array of public pensions are already underfunded. Add um, add to this devastating inflation, which will only continue as the federal government continues to spend beyond its means and print money. Most middle class workers probably know they won't be able to live off Social Security and have some other plan for retirement. But all um, all it would uh, take is a market crash to ruin them. Are they ready to work another decade to avoid outright destitution? It's a rhetorical question. Well, additionally, there are the same demographic concerns to worry about here as there. The old will soon outnumber the young as more people of childbearing years opt out of having children. Furthermore, there's good reason to think these young people are not as interested in becoming workaholics as many Americans today. Indeed, it's hard to blame them when older generations are um, well, making it more difficult for them in a multitude of ways. Fortunately, Americans may still have time to reverse course if they learn from the mistakes of the French. First and foremost, they should not trust big government or big business to take care of them. Doing so only ensures profligate spending that enriches elites, further impoverishes the middle class and leads to a culture of dependency and, well, laziness. Second, they should guard against Uh, The deep state encroachments on constitutional rights and democratic norms, unlike France, where state run media and legal censorship shut down discussion and tell people how to vote. Americans still enjoy voicing their opinions and consuming alternative media. Well, sort of, at least for now, though this is under relentless attack in the social media media age. Without a legitimate public square to debate different views, Americans will be reduced to protesting out on the streets and striking like the French. Also, the American constitutional system doesn't allow for an executive to unilaterally make changes to things like Social Security. Just ask George W. Bush. But again, this could change if President Joe Biden is allowed to forgive college debt with an executive order. This also means that he can take away Americans retirement with the same mechanism. Third, Americans will need to restore election integrity. Ironically, this is one area where the French do better than Americans. They don't have vote counting machines, early voting, mail-in ballots, or ballot harvesting. By contrast, American elites and political campaigns are able to exploit these many loopholes. Retirement will become the issue that makes or breaks our constitutional republic. The longer it goes unaddressed, the longer Americans will have to work before they'll be able to retire. Worse still, they'll have little recourse to reform a system that will force them to spend their final days on Earth earning a paycheck instead of enjoying that season of life in peace. It is an interesting parallel as we observe what's happening in France, as we think about the debate now over the debt limit and whether or not we need to cut spending and the inevitable question as to whether or not or how to extend the life of Social Security and Medicare. We'll continue to follow that developing, rather bleak story. I want to thank James Blend for producing, Dave King for engineering, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Also want to give you a heads up coming up on Thursday, our Radiothon with India Partners. Some cool announcements to be made and an opportunity to help uh, women there who are struggling to survive. We want them to do more than that to thrive. That's coming up on Thursday. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com and like us on Facebook. 
And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.